Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Yo Mama. Now, let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome, everybody, to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Avalon Landing. Pick up the critically acclaimed novel now while supplies last at your local Barnes & Noble. Welcome to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And this is a show about movies where we mm-hmm. tear them apart, but not necessarily in like a vicious way. We're, we're pretty kind to movies generally. because we, we try to understand them. Yeah. That's usually our goal is to go in and say, no. why are they doing a thing? And the fun part about that for me is it's not necessarily about being right. It's about what are my personal takeaways and how do I want to think about anything that I'm going to create? And so this is an attempt at being insightful if you're, you know, whether you're in the filmmaking community or if you're just a, uh, a fan of movies and you want to think about them in a new, interesting way, kind of a pulling back the curtains type of situation. And we're to the best of our ability. We'll, right? we'll try. Yeah. 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 Right. And uh, I'm never afraid of being wrong. I mean, it sucks whenever I'm listening back to myself and I I'm say. Scared. I'm, I'm very scared. <laughs> terrified. Yeah. But it's always you know, tricky whenever you're like, oh, I said the wrong word because when you're doing something like this, you're keenly aware that we're recording right now and dead space is not allowed or at least should be wisely used. And so whenever you're talking, you're usually thinking two or three steps ahead of where you're at. And so sometimes your mind is somewhere else while you're actually talking. You say the wrong thing and then later I have to delete some stupid th- comment that I made. <laughs> Or, or me. Or you. Yeah, like, yeah. We both do it occasionally. I feel, I guess because I'm so subconscious about myself, I feel like I do it more. But. Well, you really just have to clear out all my coughs. Yeah, that's true. I do. I, 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 I do my best now. <laughs> I'm doing better. I'm better. You are. I like, I do the, you know, I'm working on it. It's, yeah, and that's well appreciated. <laughs> so what are we doing today? Oh, today we are... We are reviewing Finding Forrester. Uh, so if you haven't seen Finding Forrester, please pause the episode because we are going to be go- diving deep into a lot of things, uh, a lot of plot stuff and everything. So we don't want to ruin anything for you. So pause this, go watch it and come back. And uh, I believe you, it is streaming on IMDb. Um, that's how I saw it. That's is it really? It. Yes. And it, um, let me warn you, there are a million commercials. So uh, a movie that's an hour 45 takes two and a half hours. So it's, it's there's brutal. built in pee breaks for you. It's brutal. It's well, no, they're not even they're not long enough to be pee breaks, but they're oh. just long enough to be super annoying. <sighs> but it's worth it. Nice. Because yeah. it's free. And it's a good movie. And it's a really good movie. It's a really good movie. We're going to talk about a lot of things. Oh, did you already do the the thing? Spoiler? Yeah, I just did it. Okay. See, my I mind was somewhere else. That was, that was the whole thing. <laughs> Let's pause this. Go but, watch it. But why models? I, <laughs> I just told you. <laughs> We're going to talk about a lot of things. We'll talk about cinematography, how lens selection affects the perception of the story. Uh, we'll discuss writing. And we'll also talk about story and inciting incidences. That's a hard word to say with the apostrophe at the end. Incidences. Incidences. <laughs> and other such stuff and things. And, and stuff. stuff. And things. Uh, synopsis of the film. A young writing prodigy finds a mentor in a reclusive author. Directed by Gus Van Zant, Written by Mike Rich. Cinematography by Harris Savitas. 
It's featuring Sean Connery as William Forrester, Rob Brown as Jamal Wallace, Anna Paquin as Claire, F. Murray Abraham as Professor Crawford, Buster Rhymes as Terrell Wallace, and Michael Pitt as Coleridge. Perhaps your skills do extend a bit farther than basketball. Now, if we can turn to... You may be seated, Mr. Coleridge. Turn to page 120 in the little blue book that I'm certain... Further. I'm sorry? Don't. You said my skills extend farther than the basketball court. Farther relates to distance. Further is a definition of degree. You should have said further. Are you challenging me, Mr. Wallace? Not any more than you challenge Coleridge. Well, perhaps the challenge should have been directed elsewhere. It is a melancholy truth that even great, great men have poor relations. Dickens. You will hear the beat of a horse's Kipling. feet. Kipling. All great truths begin. Shaw. Man is the only animal that, that blushes or needs to. It's Mark Twain. Come on, Professor Crawford. Get out. Get out. That's that's the best part. It's the best so part. Good. So good. Yes. And it comes at a really great time in the movie too, because this is after he's already been challenged by the professor. Jamal's already been challenged by uh, this professor saying, "You're not this good." And now I want you to prove it to me. What I love about this scene in particular is he is proving it to him. He's proving that he knows his literature. And if he's beating his butt in the middle of his class while the professor's trying to embarrass him, he's being embarrassed. That should be the first indicator that, oh, maybe I really did misread this situation. But this professor is more involved in his own ego, obviously, than than getting to the truth of the matter. Did you ever have a teacher like this? Just by no. the by? No. I mean, I, I did have I did, uh, my, my first high school teacher, my very first class in high school, he was like straight out of college and he was just a hard ass. Um, uh, he was a history teacher and he gave us, I don't know, I took like 12 pages of notes the first day. It was like insane. He gave us so much homework. It was crazy, but he was really cool. Like everybody <laughs> loved him, but he was a hard ass in the classroom, but not like Colbert. I mean, like, um, like Professor Crawford, who was just a like the the, the bad guy from Whiplash. You know what I mean? Like yeah. he just he just is just mean. Yeah, he's Ego just maniacal. unhappy. He's just an unhappy guy um, who decides to take it out on other people. Yeah, his know? own professional failures is now yeah. his weaponizing. <laughs> yeah, I re- I really so J- Jenny stayed up. My wife Jenny stayed up till almost two o'clock in the morning last night watching this with me. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and she, we didn't mean to, we went to go to sleep, you know, yeah. watch part of it, but like we just stayed up and she stayed up with me and I was like, Oh my God. And she loved it. This is right up her alley. I wish she'd join oh, us. Oh yeah. This is right up her alley. Cause not only does she teach this exact stuff, mm-hmm. but she got her PhD in this exact stuff <laughs> and is writing a book. She sounds so like a smart lady. She, she's the, the best of me. But she loved it, you know, and I don't think that she had any teachers like this either. I mean, she is, if she has, she hasn't told me about it. She's always talked about like having, you know, fond memories of her literature teachers and stuff. But this is, this is an interesting 
one for me. This is like almost like the the antithesis of the the whiplash teacher. Sure. Right? Yeah. Because he's a hard ass to pull something more out of someone. Right? Mm-hmm. So he could be considered that guy could be considered the the you know the good guy, right? In some world. Yeah. But this guy, but Professor Crawford is not there's no good in him at all, right? Because not only is he a failed writer, because his book doesn't get published, but he's he's tearing his students down. Which is not you what know, you should be doing as a teacher. Yeah, and being incorrect. Right. Further. You know? <laughs> um, so th- there's like really no endearing like thing that makes up for anything, any bad actions or words or, or anything that Professor Crawford says. He's just like the bad guy. He's the... The nemesis. And he plays it so well. F. Murray Abraham is like so good. So good. Incredible. Just an amazing casting choice. And I can't imagine anyone else doing that better. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I had one teacher that was like Professor Crawford, I would say. And he was a science teacher. He was not a very tall person. And otherwise, I mean, he, he could be fine. But it was in those moments when, you know, he tries to be cool. Mm-hmm. That suddenly he's kind of like a Michael Scott in that way, <laughs> where he just doesn't know how to do it, and so yeah. he ends up turning it into an insult uh, fest. And if you get the better of him, which most people did, then suddenly you're in trouble. And it's like, bro, you started this, and yeah. Uh, yeah. and I learned so little in that class, which sucks because I really enjoy science. But I will say, and I'm usually not this petty of a person. This is about to be some petty, petty shit. Uh oh. <laughs> but I looked him up like a few years ago and saw that, you know, he, he was in a, he was done teaching and he was working, you know, some not great job. And I was like, you know what? That's probably for the better of, uh, students. Oh um, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it sucks to say that, but some people really just shouldn't be teachers and clearly Agreed. Crawford should not be no, a teacher. And it is interesting. Like I brought up Jenny earlier because she's told me, like we've had conversations about how against sending kids out of the classroom Mm -hmm. she is and i never thought about that before i always thought okay kids would get sent out of class all the time i mean not all the time but every now and then Mm -hmm. kids would get sent out of class for acting up or whatever and i just thought well it's just a thing that happens if you're a pain in the ass right and then you get sent out out of the classroom and then the principal finds out and then maybe your parents do i don't know i didn't think of it as like a as like the the teacher giving up on the student. Hmm. But essentially that's what it is. So she has never done that and she never will is is because she just stands by the fact that, well, you know, if I can't at least continue to attempt to reach this child, then I'm not doing my job. Right. Wow. Like, which is crazy. Like it just, it, yeah, she, she obviously weighs that a lot heavier than, mm-hmm. than I do. I just yeah. never even thought about it. And what does he do? He kicks him out of the classroom. He gives up on him. Right. I mean, I would be pretty impressed if my whole life was about knowing these authors and what they write and everything. And this kid comes in and knows all of those things and is able to correct me. I'd be like, Wow. You're, that's amazing. Yeah. And you're in my class and I get to, I do know more than you in certain circumstances yeah. and I can teach you that, but you could also teach me like, you that's know, just because really, I'm old doesn't mean I, I know everything. Yeah. And that's a really good point. Like he never saw the opportunity to say that, like, I have something of value to give you. Yeah. He didn't look at his, 
his skill set as like a teaching instrument. He looked at it really as a weapon. Like, here's how I'm going to, you know, build myself up yeah. by tearing down freshmen. <laughs> yeah. Right. Wow. Way to go, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so how'd you feel? Did you enjoy finding force? Yeah, I loved it, man. I loved it. Um, as I said before, my wife is writing a book and I mean, yes, I'm married to her, but it's really good so far, like really good. And, you know, we're talking about how to, she talks to me about it all the time and I, and I bounce ideas off her and, and she throws things at, at me and asks me what I think. And, and, that makes me feel really good. It makes me feel like I'm a part of it, even though I'm not writing a single word, you know? But so to watch a movie like this in the middle of her writing the great American novel, right. Yeah. was really cool. Like just having her next to me while we're watching that and, and you know, whatever she's thinking, you know, kind of, I can feel it, you know, I can feel her attention towards it and, and the relatability of, you know, her with, um, Forrester, uh, or hell, or her even with Jamal, right? And learning these things, you know, like, yeah. like like being taught this or that, or or having something to say, right? So it was it was a great experience watching it. But even if I wouldn't have watched it with her, I would have been sucked in. It yeah. was like really really good. The acting was really amazing. There were a few moments that, or a few things that I questioned a little bit on, like like for example. When he first breaks into mm-hmm. Forrester's apartment, it's kind of very, he's very nonchalant about breaking into an, like breaking and entering, right? Huh. Not only is he breaking and entering, but everybody's been scared of this guy because nobody's seen him. There's rumors he's killed somebody and he just kind of matter of fact, just it noisily opens the window, drops his bag through the window and like hops in and is just like walking around like normal. He's not sneaky or anything. And I, I was like, really, man? I mean, (laughs) why did they, you know, why, why is that? Like, why do they do it that way? I don't know. Uh, I think, I mean, part of it is, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I made a note about this. Like it is a slow, casual stroll and the music, right. Is this, this easy jazz. It's very peaceful up until the point where William stands up and yeah. we realize that, oh, crap, he's been watching. He's been there the whole time. And you see his wide-eyed reaction. And then it's a furious, you know, the music switches to furious jazz and quick cuts. And it's excitement and fear to show that, oh, he's he's been aware of the circumstances the whole time. It's just whenever you <laughs> you feel in control in one moment and you feel out of control the next. Mm-hmm. Because if he's asleep and someone says, yeah, we were watching him, he's asleep now. Like, okay, then there's a certain amount of comfort in believing like, okay, this guy's passed out. I'm not here to do anything bad. So I think part of it is the belief in his own intentions is very relaxed to him because he's like, I'm not here to do anything bad. And he admitted that he didn't believe the kid about this guy being some dangerous thing at the lunch table where this whole dare sprung up. And so he doesn't believe this guy's a danger, which is funny because uh, he sees the knife, but I mean, it's also just sitting out. So he's also taking the knife. So, yeah. you know, there's, he's mitigated any possible dangers that there would be. So, yeah, I think, I think part, it's, it's all those things, but I think more importantly I, to the question, I think you're really asking is the way they shout it that way I, is to create a sense of calm and peace in this place that we're going to spend so much of the movie. Um, yeah. Instead of this kind of bewilderment and anxiety, we don't want to feel that in the actual 
hmm. bookie apartment. <laughs> like even at the beginning though, when he first comes in, yeah. like he's just because what kind he could of- at least be quiet. <laughs> like even if he's not like sneaky, yeah. you know, he could at least like set his bag down. And it's funny because he and it becomes a running theme throughout the movie. Uh, whenever he looks at one of his books, he kind of just sets it back in there halfway. Uh, um, right. And of course, yeah. throughout the movie, he like starts slides it. Yeah. Very nice little touches. <laughs> and they never say anything. That's, yeah. that's never uttered. It's yeah. just a very physical visual cue that we get. Yeah. And even at one point, he's banging on the typewriter and punch the keys, punch the keys. <laughs> and he puts a book back and he never looks back, but he just hears the keys stop. And he's like, he finishes pushing it all the way back in. It's like they have a, a rhythm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's cool. No, I, I loved the film. Yeah. It was wonderful. That's awesome. I mean, you know, over, it's like an overall, an overall experience watching it, you know, it's a slow burn. Um, but beautiful. Like you're learning things throughout yeah. the whole thing, you know, you really are. Right. And yeah. That is definitely a ton of fun just to see and hear how writers think of their craft and, yeah. and you know, someone, you know, even if you're not in the audience thinking this being you and I we're acutely aware that a writer wrote this movie about writers. And so that that carries a different level of weight than just a couple of guys sitting around actually talking about it. Yeah. This is coming from the perspective of someone who clearly likes writing yeah. um, and sees value in it. And yeah. And for me, like I grew up writing, I've been writing all my life and telling stories and seeing someone like a William Forrester is really cool to me because I didn't have that in my life. I just had what I enjoyed. My brothers didn't weren't writers to a large extent so I was kind of on my own in the family that way. I was a black sheep in a thousand ways. So I kind of identify with Jamal from the standpoint of the people around me don't do what I do. I don't really have have what I would call like a peer that I can go and talk to um, and discuss or show my work and say, hey, what do you think of this? And get critical feedback. So I've tried to be good at, you know, critiquing my own work. But the one good moment of and probably the most impactful teacher where I kind of had my Forrester influence was in sixth grade. My English class teacher, uh, Mrs. Toon, and her husband actually was a band teacher for a while. Mr. Toon. Uh, <laughs> yes. The band teacher, yeah. Mr. Toon? It's too easy. Oh, God. And so Mrs. Toon, uh, on our first day of sixth grade, was like, hey, we're going to do a vocabulary word list. Every day you're going to learn a new word. Um, we'll use it in class in a sentence at some point. And then you're also going to spend the first few minutes of class writing and the first day you're going to write one sentence and every week we'll add a little bit more so the first week you write a sentence a day that's it that's your work and then next week you'll write two sentences and then you'll write a paragraph and then by the end of the semester you'll be writing a page every day for your warm-up and you look at that big empty page as a whatever, uh, you know, 10 year old, 11 year old, you're like, how am I going to fill up my thoughts on this page? Mm -hmm. But it just taught you a little bit at a time. You get into a rhythm, you learn how to write. And that was such a huge thing for me to just to understand how to write. And I think any artist, it's mostly just getting yourself to do a little bit and challenging Mm -hmm. yourself. But watching Forrester and Jamal interact, uh, was, I don't know, it hit a different level of me that, this is like, oh, and then you throw in basketball because I played basketball growing up. And I'm like, was this movie made for me? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's the like a, it's like a sports movie, 
the same kind of like setup as a sports movie, but it's intellectual. Yeah. Like it's right. It's for, it's about writing. So like in sports movie, say it's a football movie, you know, Friday, Friday night lights or something. I don't know, whatever. Maybe that's a bad example. <laughs> it's a bad example, but you, they teach you something about the sport, right? Yeah. So for people that maybe are not football people, they can come in and watch this, learn something about the sport and then maybe appreciate the film and the sport more. Right. That's the exact same thing as this movie. Like they, te- they are purposefully teaching you through Forrester teaching Jamal. Be- like the best thing they teach you is, is where he tells him, don't think just right. That's, that's it. And then the, the, the thing where he said, he said the best feeling is going after you're done reading it by yourself for the first time. Right. That's cool. That's a very cool thing, you know? And I, I remember I was talking to, to Jenny on the couch and I was, I was telling her like, yeah. Oh, oh. When he said, he said that he just wanted to have, he just wanted to, he didn't want to, or wasn't thinking that he would write the next great American novel. He just wanted something he could give his family. Right. Wow. And I was like, that's exactly why I recorded music. I never you know, thought that anybody would ever listen to it, but I wanted to have this like physical thing back then it was cassettes that I could, that I could give to my family, like, or show my kids one day or whatever. Now I would never show them that. Um, uh, but you know, that's just, you know, that's how it starts. And then you get better and, and, and maybe it turns into something, but they teach you something throughout it. It's really, really cool. Like I felt like I could do that at the end of the movie. Yeah. I can't, but I felt like I could. <laughs> That's so badass. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to dive a little into cinematography? Yeah, please. Because there's some please. really cool stuff uh, that I realized I don't think we've touched on in the show before. First of all, there's a lot of shallow depth of field, but we've touched on that. Fair enough. Yeah. But I think we're using a lot of shallow depth of field because we're focused on the inner world of our characters. And less, it's less focused on their environment. It's most on how do they feel, how do they see the world. Um, and periodically, they, they go wider and deeper so that periodically it's also about the world they inhabit as it relates to their inner world. It's never really about their external circumstances, you know, him being a recluse or Jamal being, you know, in a, a rough neighborhood. It's always about his transition from a rough neighborhood to, you know, the white neighborhood and the mm-hmm. upper class and how he's mixing, mixing in here and there and how he almost is a recluse himself in his own neighborhood. And that's kind of the, the interesting parallel that we're finding between the, these two characters. They don't ever express these things very directly or even at all. Um, but Jamal himself has been hiding out from his peers because he, they don't know how smart he is. His teachers don't know how smart he is. He's been hiding all of that uh, intelligence from them so that he could fit in. And for his, all his own other reasons that he never goes into, we just get to suppose his inner life. And that's a really great method of kind of world building in our own heads. And one of the ways that they kind of keep us in tune with the characters is by using a shallower depth of field so that we're less focused on anything except who we're looking at and who we're interacting with. Mm-hmm. Because your eyes attracted to the thing that's in focus. That's right. Not the thing's not. Mm -hmm. And so now let's talk about angles, lens choices, wide angle versus medium versus long telephoto lenses. And there's a, the thing that we haven't, I don't think we've ever touched on is 
why is it called a wide angle versus a medium versus a long or a telephoto lens? What makes it wide versus telephoto? And why you call something a medium versus a wide versus long is it's all relative to the camera's sensor size. So, for instance, is a 35 millimeter or why is a 100 millimeter considered a telephoto or a long lens? So it's all in relation to the sensor size of the camera or the film size in our case, because finding Forrester was shot on film. So if you have a 35 millimeter camera, that's the size um, of the, the sensor or the film strip, it's 35 millimeters, then everything is going to be in relation to the size of that sensor. Therefore, a 35 millimeter lens is a medium lens. It's got a one-to-one -one ratio with the, with the sensor. And so because of that, it presents the world more normal to the human eye. So anything around that area is going to be a medium lens. And this gets a little subjective, but I would say probably between 28 millimeters to 50 millimeters, it's considered medium on a 35 millimeter camera. However, that same 35 millimeter lens on a 16 millimeter camera, like I have a, a super 16 camera. And if you throw that same exact 35 millimeter lens on my super 16 camera, now it's a telephoto lens because we'll get more compression and the way that it's interacting with my sensor is we're getting less of that lens in our viewing area. And so we're going to get a narrower field of view on that 16 millimeter uh, camera than we would, you know, mm -hmm. on a 35 millimeter camera. Mm -hmm. Therefore, in order to get a medium lens on a super 16 camera, you need to start around a 16 millimeter lens and that's going to prevent any distortion. So the reasons to shoot on each one of these lens sets, uh, lens types is going to be a wide angle lens is going to dramatize our environment. Uh, superheroes look more fantastic. Everything looks bigger because now you can get closer and it just really exacerbates or overdoes. God, I can't think of the word. It's, this is the wrong movie to do that. <laughs> in. <laughs> but it just kind of uh, exaggerates the, you know, the characteristics of anything you're looking at. So I have a question then. Okay. If I have two cameras, I have a Super 16 and I put a 16 millimeter lens on it and I have a 35 millimeter camera, put a 35 millimeter lens on it. What, what is the difference? What does the frame, what is the difference in the frame on both of them? Like, and I'm shooting the same thing. Right. Like, what, so how if you does set the cameras different? up side by side? Right. How does how does, does it look different, or does it look the same? Because they're both medium shots for that camera. Yeah, they should look the same. They should look the same. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. Yeah, and that's because of the sensor. Yeah, that's because of the sensor. Right. Um, okay. Weird. Isn't I didn't it? know that. That's, I, that's I literally do this math sometimes on a scene because I'm used to shooting on a Super 35 sensor. Mm. But whenever I sh shoot uh, Super 16, the math is different. And so whenever I'm like, okay, I want to rehearse this on my digital camera. Okay, what lens am I on on my Super 16? Okay, I'm on a 16 millimeter. Well, then for my Super 35, I need to be at about a 32 because uh, the ratios are a little different on a super 35 versus a 35. Uh, and I literally did all the math on measuring my sensor versus, uh, the super 16 film. And I'm like, okay, I'm at a two to one ratio. So if I want to get at the same field of view, then I'm on a 32 millimeter and I have a zoom lens so I can dial in exactly like, okay, then I can walk through it and talk to my DP. Here's what I'm thinking mm -hmm. for the shot. He can, we can previs the shot. Uh, yeah. You're such a nerd. I, love I it. really, yeah. I love it. it's great. <laughs>
That's great. And so wide angles, yeah, they are going to exaggerate kind of the environment. And then longer lenses, by contrast, is going to dramatize, I feel, and this is more maybe more of a personal opinion. I haven't like looked up what Deacons or any of the, the big shots say. So if they want to correct me, I'm more than happy to receive that. Uh, but whenever I think of longer lenses, I'm thinking about dramatizing people and their emotions. Yeah. And well, because so, you can separate them from, the, from, like you said, their environment a little bit more. And you you can, can separate them a little bit more, but it's also, uh, yeah, compressing all their features right. more too. Right. Um, because if you want to do a close-up on a long lens, you got to get really far away. And then you're bringing all those things, the distance from the camera to the person is now shifting. And so to get closer, things start to flatten out. This is one of those weird things that you kind of have to see it to really completely understand. But the, if you just think of a mountain range, you know, whenever you're standing, you know, 20 miles away, that mountain range looks pretty flat to you. You can't really see, you know, the depth of the trees on the front of that mountain. The same thing is happening, you know, to a lesser extent whenever someone's, you know, 15 feet away and you're putting on a longer lens than when they're, you know, three feet away and you have a wider angle lens. Yeah. Now they're, the depth of their face is different. The relativity of their nose to their eyes uh, looks bigger when they're close up than when they're further away. And even if you have them framed exactly the same. Uh, they're still going to look well and and, and f-stop is going to change too right so mm-hmm. like if they're if they're farther away they're probably going to be interact like in through the camera they're probably going to be interacting more with their background right mm-hmm. you, you right because yeah if they're far away and the background is also far away it's just, it's different than if they're close close to the camera, right? Yeah. And the background is even if the background is close, because they're so close, the background is going to look farther away. Right. You know right. what I mean? And but the f stop can it can yeah. It's an interesting thing because I think on a wide angle, if you have someone close, the background may even may actually look closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and yeah. then uh, yeah. to your point, like even though they're further away, that longer lens is separating that much more from their background. Yeah. It's this weirdly strange dynamic that is happening. Right. Yeah. So there's, those are the kind of the reasons that you want to shoot wide versus long. And there's probably a dozen other reasons that you may choose one or the other, maybe even hundreds, honestly, but wide the, the point being wide angles and long lenses are stylized choices. They're creating a less grounded universe to some extent that we're exploring. It's less humanistic. Meanwhile, the medium lenses are less dramatic. They're trying to present when you're using this, and that's what most of Finding Forester is doing. They're using a lot of medium lenses because they're trying to present things as they are. It's grounded. It's less stylized. Even the colors, right, a little more uh, desaturated. And it's more human because we're dialing in closer to our normal uh, field of view. And so using all those uh, bits of visual language is a great way to focus on this is a human drama. We're focused on people and not really much else. And so I think at some times, though, they do break out some longer lenses. I didn't really notice any wide angles, but I do think and I'm not positive. I don't know what lens set they they shot these on. Um, but I think they use some longer lenses just a handful of times for specific effect. Uh, like when William is feeling shut in or claustrophobic, whenever you start pulling out these longer lenses and you're getting close-ups on them, we start feeling a little more claustrophobic because he's crowding our frame out. We're normally, we're not getting quite this crowded in the frame. There's also that shot after that scene we played at the intro, um, of Crawford kicking out Jamal. 
we go into the hallway. This is such a cool scene to me because I've never noticed this before. But in the hallway, we go on a longer lens and it's kind of representing something whenever he's talking to Claire, they're walking down the hall and it's kind of indicating that he feels trapped and he feels claustrophobic too um, in, in this new environment because they're having that, that conversation, him and Claire, right? That, you know, there's nothing you can do. It doesn't matter what, what I do. Uh, they're never going to let me be a part of this. And so he's feeling separated and, and trapped. Yeah. yeah. They also use it a little bit in the basketball game when we're kind of viewing from the stands. That's kind of a logical frame choice. But I think it's also representing in that shot that William is watching because the other times that we kind of get this field of uh, angle, this field of view is whenever he's watching them play basketball on the, the court outside of his apartment. So now we're kind of looking at and it's never said, but it's this great, subtle uh, connection that they're making throughout the film. And. Uh, that's super simple, cool. super subtle. Otherwise, it does mostly feel like we stay in mediums. But just again, as a side note, we're, I'm talking about medium lenses, not medium shots. There's a yeah. difference between uh, shot composition and the lens choice. And so those are two different things. A lot of similar terminology, though. Yeah, that <laughs> no, makes sense. So camera movements, I thought they kept them really, really simple. And it was kind of fun to watch. Uh, sometimes all you really need is a simple tilt and pan and a lot of the shots are just that we're kind of mounted on a tripod and we're watching characters move throughout the world instead of tracking with them. That's not to say that uh, there are a handful of dolly shots, but not a ton. We're usually on a tripod panning and tilting to follow our characters around and they're carefully composing these things. But it's nice too, because we capture the characters as they are. We're watching kind of like, William watches the birds in their habitat. We're watching our characters. Uh, so in some, there's, I think there's some semblance that they're doing there. And then there is this great handheld shot that maybe they did it more times. I, I can't remember them going handheld uh, a bunch, but they certainly went handheld when Jamal calls out William towards the end, when he's like, F you, William, when he finally says the thing that he couldn't say at first. Yeah. And he just drops it on him. The two words. Yeah. The <laughs> two words. He says them, F you, William. And it's a great shot. It's because it's very emotional. We're suddenly destabilized. We feel the disconnect in their relationship. Um, and it's all this visual cue of handheld. It's destable. We're off the tripod. We're off of safety. Things are not good here. Um, but that scene is also great, too, because it it reveals uh, on a story note, it reveals that Jamal's analysis, his original analysis of William's book was correct because William is yelling back at him that life is tragic. There are no reasons why things happen. And that was Jamal's original kind of thesis statement on William's book. He's, he's like, yeah, my professor Crawford thinks it's about you and the war and blah, blah, blah. But I don't, I don't think that's right. I think it's just you're just trying to say that things happen. <laughs> yeah. And it's not until like an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes later that you realize, oh, he was right. He was dead on. Yeah. Well, <laughs> good spot. Going into story. I couldn't figure out for years. I've loved watching this movie. I saw it in theaters, actually, right out of high school. And so and I was just playing basketball and all that. And I'll get to that in a second. But that opening shot is so crazy because I'm like, I don't know of any other movie off the top of my head that's done this where mm -hmm. they have a slate, a slate. Yeah. they slate it, they pull out and then this street corner rapper starts going at it. He starts just freestyling. And I was like, what, why, 
And then by the end, of course, you know, 10 minutes in the movie, you forget that that ever happened. Yeah. But it's a bold start. And it made me question, why is that? And I just kind of made a note and like, oh, you know what? It's super obvious now that if you if you stop and really think about it, uh, because for one, this is a book about literature and it's about writing and your capability with words. And this character on the street corner freestyling, clearly, they just slate and say, you know, all right, go. And he starts freestyling. And it shows that there are young black men who are witty, sharp, and intellectual wordsmiths. And that just because it doesn't look like the way you think it should look like doesn't mean that it's not there and in spades. Yeah. In spades. You have a ton of smart people in these, uh, you know, rougher neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. And I think they can do things that you couldn't imagine. Like, like I I challenge anybody listening right now to freestyle. I'm going to say for 10 seconds, yeah. that kid goes for like a minute and a half, two minutes. <laughs> and he had more in him. He just kind yeah. of wrapped it up there. Yeah. yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. It's it, incredible. It really is. And so I think that was just a really smart nod to kind of introduce us to this world that, hey, there's a lot of intelligence here that you may not have anticipated, but I'm going to introduce you. And it's it's the cool. Now that you're saying that, I'm kind of like understanding and kind of getting into this mode because I was thinking, OK, well, why use the slate? But they use the slate because they want to tell you this is real world, yeah. right? This, wasn't this is written. not part of the movie, right? This is, this is, and in all those shots, they're all candid shots. Yeah. The, like the whole intro, all of the whole um, title sequence is all non set up. They're just going to put the camera there and whatever happens, happens. We're going to put it in a barber shop and we're going to film this guy cutting hair. We're going to put it on side, the side of the street and, and film a couple guys just sitting on chairs, you know, and it was all real. So everything that was happening while that kid was freestyling was all real stuff. And so then good. you see the title of the movie and you see Jamal and it's there. Okay. There's the, yeah. the that's this. Now the movie is really actually yeah, now starting. We begin. Now we begin. Yes. <laughs> that's so good to kind of anchor the fact that this could and probably does happen, huh. you know, in the, in the real world. Yeah. Yeah. So introducing our characters from a storytelling point of view is pretty cool because Jamal, our first shot of Jamal is his book collection and he's got heavy hitters like Chekhov and uh, probably a bunch of people that I've never heard of or certainly haven't read. And we also shoot, you know, we start in shooting him with medium lenses. He's normal which is he's near to us and he's realistic. By contrast, William, our first introduction to William, is a shot of him hiding behind binoculars and curtains in an unlit apartment. <laughs> like, he could not be more reclusive. And I think we shoot him there with longer lenses, uh, zooms probably, and he's just really distant from us. And so going to the break-in, we talked earlier about you know that, that style setup. But it's after that that I think is interesting because they don't wait too long before we redeem Jamal's break-in with his sharp intellect using the, the BMW lesson. Because I think it's kind of important to make us like this character again after we've shown him and his flaw. Like, great, show us that he's flawed, but you need to quickly remind us that he's a really sharp, intelligent guy because he just did something stupid. Yeah. <laughs> um, the clock is ticking there, and they don't waste a lot of time with that. And the BMW scene is such a great... Yeah, it's perfect. Oh, crap. This this kid is on something. 
And then we get into his inciting incidents. And so from a bigger perspective, inciting incidents are why we're here. It's the reason we have a story. And usually it's how we move our heroes out of their comfort zone so that we can test them and see how they grow and uh, respond to these new challenges. And Jamal has two, which is kind of interesting to me. I don't usually keep track of an inciting incident. I just... For a while I did, I would literally see what time of the movie, oh, 25 minutes, oh, 23 minutes, oh, 25 minutes. Like Mm. almost that clockwork is usually when that kind of stuff happens. But Jamal gets two. He has this test score that Mm -hmm. ends up pushing him into a new school. And then the dare, which introduces him to William. Both of these incidents take him on separate roads that inevitably intertwine. Both push him out of his comfort zone to learn more about himself and the world around him. And it's a really effective way to just kind of get him going on his journey. Let's throw something, two things at him. And at that point, it's they're really riding the line, but I think they do a great job of not being too overly fantastic about it. Like, oh, we learned that he's really smart. It's a simple, having a test push him into a new school isn't that crazy because he's a talented basketball player. Like there's a lot of subtle creative ways that they introduce who he is and what he's capable of without ever making it feel like, oh, you're kind of putting a hat on the hat now. Mm-hmm. Um, he's super talented and he's super smart. Those things aren't mutually exclusive, obviously. Yeah. And we just demonstrate both of those things in different ways. Um, his relationship with Claire, I thought was uh, pretty interesting. Creating a love interest between the two. So you put two attractive people in a scene and in two shots. So you literally put them together so that we're thinking about them as a couple visually. um, Two shot, meaning they're both in the shot. Yeah, correct. And then you can't stop there, obviously. At the end of their very first meeting when she's uh, his tour guide, there's this great lingering handshake. But I love that we never actually see their hands. We just see their body language. Mm -hmm. And it's just a subtle tell. And so we're kind of creating this inner world in the viewer saying, wait, are they... Are they still shaking hands? Like, mm-hmm. and is there something here? And I love that idea of you don't spell it out. You kind of make us question and create our own inner dialogue about what's happening on screen. Um, but it's when she walks away that we see Jamal check her out with just his eyes, right? And he just stays. We, I don't think we ever see him walk away. We just kind of finished the shot on him watching her walk away. Yeah. That's such a great way to end the scene. And now we've sold an interracial love story in a city clearly divided by race. And so that's, that's really fun. The one thing I thought was interesting is that they never kiss. Yeah. You know, and part of you might think, Oh, is that too much for this particular film? And I don't think that's that. I think it's just, that's not the focus of our story. Their love story isn't the point. And I don't, and I think you want to, guard against how far you take that love story so that you don't draw attention away from the writing right, and right. his relationship with William. Cause that's far more important. Um, and so you start creating too many stakes with them and you start to want to see more of that. Oh, what about that? Yeah. Yeah. So very you, good point. So you pull away from that just a tad, you create it, create that drama that surrounds it with her dad now. Cause now you have mm-hmm. more dramatic tension that's getting you to reevaluate how he's interacting in this new world yeah. and that she's a great avenue for that. Now he also has a confidant and ally and a reason to get advice from William. Like she becomes a great plot device in mm-hmm. and of herself. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that she serves much more of a purpose other than 
reasons for him to do things X, Y, and Z. And she's a, re- a redeeming white figure. And <laughs> honestly, <laughs> great point in a, uh, in a school where there aren't a whole lot. Yeah. It's just him well, and Coleridge. Coleridge. Is pretty yeah. Awesome. yeah. And it's, it's great. And just for the record, it, in case you, you, you know, feel like I just think they don't want to show white and black kid kissing Gus Van Sant. The director is gay. So I really doubt he has any issue with interracial yeah, PDA. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and so getting onto like the basketball, really love the basketball in this movie because it's good basketball. It is. These kids yes. actually play basketball. So I believe the world we're in, there's nothing worse than like watching something so bad it's really bad like stranger things has basketball scenes and i'm like y'all clearly don't play basketball and it's very frustrating to me Mm -hmm. (laughs) but because you can tell by the body language the ball movement their dribbling skills um the way they finish a layup like all those things really matter whenever you're selling the believability of this kid is an all-star and just watching his crossover i'm like yeah that kid plays yeah and Watching him play basketball, it's also a really good scene that first time when we see him play, you know, the other uh, black kid on his team. You're thinking, oh, he's got an ally, and that's what he's thinking. And we're quickly uh, uh, removed from that that illusion. You mean in the new high school? Yeah, in the new high school. Right, right. Uh, And you're like, oh, yeah, they're not going to be buddies. Yeah. Um, But it's also. That kid scores once. That's it. Yeah. He's like, you're not doing that again on me. Get past the line. Yeah. Yeah. So good. But it's also uh, really good because we get to see where Jamal's personality really comes alive. Because normally he's a pretty relaxed and reserved dude. But on the court, suddenly he's talking trash. He's hyper competitive and he's not in chill, uh, not as chill and laid back as normal. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really good opportunity to see another side of his personality. And on Jamal in and of himself as a character, it's really telling because he responds to being challenged. Whether it's his professor, whether it's William, no matter who it is, he's going to respond to being challenged. And that's a core part of his character that we get to see over and over and over again. And they they play that really honestly. So that's a great written character because 50 free throws, that scene where we watch him playing basketball and the coach is like, you know, first one to miss has to run or whatever. They both make 50 in a row. And so we set up his ability as a basketball player he does not miss free throws. And it's a great setup because it's a very well ties into the end of the movie when we're questioning, did he miss that shot? Of course he missed it on purpose. Um, And it's a strong character choice to lose the playoff game on purpose. And it's only, and I love it because it's only really obvious to us, the viewer and maybe to William. Mm -hmm. We don't know how much he's told William about uh, his... William knows. William knows. Yes. He he knows. And no one else knows why he might want to lose. So his motivations for losing aren't clear to anybody else but us and William. And that's a really cool thing, kind of an inside question that we get Mm -hmm. and we know without ever actually being told. Yeah. It's not exactly a soup question. (laughs) Yeah. On, On William as a character... I love seeing William talk and confide in Jamal like he's a peer. It's just a subtle Mm. commentary on how much William respects Jamal. Yeah. God, that's cool. Because he's been lacking peers. He's been lacking this... this And a 16-year-old kid is his peer, right? (sighs) To find a counterpart like that. Yeah. Super cool. One's at the end of his life and has grown up in a completely different era, um, but they both relate and they both have uh, something to talk about. And (laughs) 
And I could watch Sean Connery ride around on his bike for hours. Oh my God, it's the best part of the movie. I laughed. When he first bumps up the tires and he's like, right, I'm like, oh my God, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen him. I just want to watch him ride his bike. Yeah, it's awesome. I love it. You know, one of the the coolest things about that I liked about this movie too is that, you know, they talk about how awesome of, of a rider Jamal is, right? The whole movie. And you never really read anything. Like you never really see. So at the end, William reads, you know, his piece and we hear a little bit, but we don't hear enough to really form an opinion of it. And the point is, is that it doesn't really matter. Right. It's like, it's great. He, you know, everyone loves it. It's what he does best. And, you know, like he, Jamal, you know, he misses those free throws because he doesn't want to be just known as the jock, which is what everybody wants him to be. And right? I think he also wants to see where his value is because, yeah, it's not. Right, it, right. You, and which is playing right into your point. Like he yeah. doesn't want to just be a jock, but he also wants to see, OK, if you all really want to kick me out, then I'll give you a reason. Like, yeah, where do you all really see value in me as a person? Right. Or am I just a means to an end to y'all? Yeah. yeah. yeah but it's layered. Yeah. Yeah. And the, and. But the movie itself is more is is about that. It's about yeah. like like knowing your worth and making others see that. Yeah. Right. And it doesn't really uh, to us as a viewer matter what his writing is, how good it is. No. So yes, I all of that I think is really smart. And what I did not realize until you just said it, <laughs> because I was looking at something else from a writing perspective. And now we're going to dive into more about writing. The I think the other reason that they did that is because they fade out the actual dialogue of what Jamal wrote because there is no writing good enough to actually match our expectations of what this amazing writing should yeah, be. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Right? It's a definitely. cover. The, yeah. The best way to, to make the best song ever is to never let anybody hear it. Yeah. <laughs> and we see time and time again movies fall into this trap of, it's the best song I've ever heard. And then, or he's the best singer I've ever heard. And then you got to actually perform that now. Right. Well, how about you just don't and instead show the reaction yeah. of people listening to it. Yeah. And who already heard it. Yeah. Yes, yes. And now you can say, Oh, you know, we fade out Williams reading and now we're just experiencing it through other people's reactions. And that's more emotional, emotionally impactful than, you know, us as an audience, We've been there's been too much hype put into his writing. There is no way for him to live up to it. Mm-hmm. So it's much better to uh, leave it up to our imagination and not set yourself up because now we're just going to be critiquing the hell out of it. Yeah, of course. Oh, I wouldn't have said that. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. You're not a writer. Yeah. Like, so they give you one like one or two liners. You know, it, yeah, we're setting pieces. it up. We're boom. Oh yeah, that's a really thoughtful thing. Where is this going? Oh, I didn't get to hear where this is going. Yeah. Oh, I get to hear where it ended. Man, yeah. That was interesting. And we don't hear a single word from from his from William's book. No, that's either, true. You know? Well, we hear one quote from Jamal what, on the baseball field. Yeah, what was it? Yeah, what was it? The unrest of those before us can never. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you get settle, one line. Settle the rest from a whole a whole yeah. Ameri- you know great American novel. You yeah, get one. Which line. it's a great it's line. It had great. me thinking. It was like, yeah. uh, let me see if I can nail it. The the rest of those who came before us can never settle the rest of the the unrest of those who follow. Oh yeah, and it's like man. That's good. Yeah, That's good. I want to read that book. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
And I love, to your point earlier, like I love the, uh, uh, going way, way back earlier, write the first draft with your heart and edit with your head. I'm finally kind of getting to that point in my own writing where I'm enjoying editing more because so long, man, I just, I write and I only kind of edit. It's really hard for me to re-envision a scene and I'm getting better at how to do that and um, how to analyze my own work. And I think that's just really good writing advice is just first key to writing is just to write, not to think. Definitely. And then go back and think, what was I trying to say or uh, what's the point of this? How can I blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I love it. The other thing I thought was interesting was the editing of this movie felt like writing. And I mean that in the sense of there's all these truncated transitions, like we're an abrupt ending of a scene, whether it's William closing the door or someone just finishing a sentence, like barely finishing the sentence. And then you're into the next scene. Yeah. And I think it's a little bit like a chapter that ends with a period the page is done. Now you have to turn the page to continue reading. And I feel like they're doing that. They're creating this uh, writing texture and language in the film through the editing. And I thought that's very cool. cool. Yeah. 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 And two last quick notes. Good characters make decisions. Being able to put a, a character to a moral question, safety and comfort versus doing the right thing. Right. You're, I feel like this is always something that we should be trying to get our characters to do as writers. Like, are you making them extend beyond their their own comfort zone you know are you putting them to a cross uh, to a crossroads and they're constantly doing that in this movie jamal has it all the time like he has to make a decision do i bail myself out or do i keep my promise to william and he has his failings here and there but they they constantly make him make those decisions and we respect him and love him more because of that uh, and then lastly the one thing I loved, and I feel like we could all learn as artists, uh, Jamal's persistence is what gets William's door to open. It's his persistence and his honest demeanor that earns William's respect. Mm-hmm. The secret yeah. to, to being successful in anything is to not go away. <laughs> yeah, yes. <laughs> to annoy the hell out of somebody until they let you in their room, their door. <laughs> yep. Yep. Hell or high water, man. I'm getting in. Yeah. I love that. Oh, that, that sounds like a short film. Yeah. <laughs> maybe one you've already written. Ooh, hey, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> what, um, yeah, any other thoughts? I don't know. I mean, there, yeah, there, yes and no. I mean, I have, I have plenty, but I don't, I don't think that it, that it would, it would go any deeper than what you just did or what we have done so far. I mean, it's just a really fun, uh, great and informative movie to watch. You know, like I... I was talking to Jenny about it today. I was like, you know, I, one of the reasons I like that movie is because I learned something and about something that I don't know a whole lot about. I really love that. I, I think, you know, I love watching stuff on, on YouTube, but like people doing these amazing things, like, like solving a Rubik's cube really fast or, you know, like, like doing an amazing routine, hacky sack routine, or like, you know, being the greatest, at whatever that is like these totally random things, but like seeing somebody who's dedicated their whole life to it. Right. And learning some little bitty thing about it. Like, Oh yeah, if you do this or that, then you, then, you know, I could get a couple extra hits on a hacky sack or I could stay up on a skateboard longer or whatever, you know, or I could lean into a a curve more on my bike, things like, so knowing a little bit, like you could learn a ton in just a second, you know, like a, a few little pieces of advice. I feel like this, this movie really did that for me in writing. 
there's you know? always something amazing watching someone do something that they're great at. That they're great at. Yes. God. Yes. That's why, you know, there's Guinness world records, right? There's yeah. a reason that those things exist because it's just, it's amazing. <laughs> and to know, but you can, the point being is that you, this, this movie taught me like probably a whole lot in a very small amount of time about something I didn't know a whole lot about, Yeah, you know, or maybe I thought I did, but I hadn't, you know, kind of like dive, dive, divin dove into that, into that world enough to, to really find out those, that those kind of pieces of advice exist, you know? So yeah, it was really good. Acting was, acting was amazing. Writing was fantastic and, uh, kept my wife awake till two o'clock in the morning. So, which is super, which impressive. if you know, my wife is, uh, very, she very doesn't impressive. stay awake from movies at like 8 PM. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> and she loved it. So yeah, that's so cool. Jenny approved. And yeah. And for me, like watching and thinking about writing, it's always a good reminder that, a blank page doesn't have to be that scary. Get the keys moving. And for me, mm-hmm. I think whenever I'm having a, a hard time writing, if I just sit down and think, well, what's the very, what is the scene? What does it look like? What time of day is it? Okay. Yeah. Well, and then to William's point, once your fingers start moving, you can't write fast enough. You're like, why am I still on the sentence? I have this next sentence that's in my head that needs to come out. So if you're, if you're wanting to write your own great American novel or screenplay or uh, whatever, like poem, just pick up a pen and write something, anything, and then watch it turn into something else. It's, yeah. I gave your, your kids a, a gift, a, I don't know, a month ago or whatever, where I brought, brought them some pens and I was like, Hey, I got you some magic pens. Oh yeah. And yeah. I'm sure by now they've lost them, but no, yeah. I was like, they're magic. And I'm going to tell you why it's because every time you use it, you get a really good idea, but that's not the magic part. The magic part is, the more you use it, the better your ideas get. Yeah. Go oh, that's ahead. cool. Go yeah. And so just because it's true, like it's awesome, the, man. the magic is in doing. Yeah. It's always going to be in the doing. Yeah. Heck yeah. Very cool, man. Nice. Jeez. What, uh, what are you going to recommend this week? I'm going to recommend Goodwill Hunting. Dang. I knew you had, I, knew, I win. Yeah. I knew we were going to touch I on would, this. I knew I would because, <laughs> because you always let me go first. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> Yeah, so this is like another version of Goodwill Hunting, you know. Um, same director. Yeah, yeah, same director. I mean, it, it is a little bit different because obviously the main character is a totally different, totally different vibe, right? He's like full of himself and thinks he knows it all and everything. And Jamal just did not, yeah. you know, he was very subdued and uh, and stuff. But it's Secret amazing. genius. Yeah, it's a it's amazing writing, and I just yeah, I love the fact that like. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck just, they wrote, they've just wrote this thing. And then now they're like, you know, some of the biggest stars in Hollywood and they have been for 20 years, you know? And I love that Gus brought Matt in again. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes, that's right. And I, I forgot that he was in it. Until yeah. I, I saw him, I'm like, oh, that's right. Yeah. Freaking, yeah, Matt was in this. So, um, uh, yeah. Good one, honey. Badass. I am going to recommend... I'm going to recommend J.D. Salinger's The Catcher in the Rye. Okay. Because I think this uh, this movie is modeled after J.D. Salinger, mm-hmm. who wrote Catcher in the Rye and then didn't write anything else or didn't publish anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, now, he does have several more novels that he, that are scheduled to come out. He passed away uh, several years ago, and now they're scheduled to start coming out. I forget the years or whatever, but yeah, after he wrote Catcher in the Rye, he became reclusive and uh, wasn't as 
you know, publicly visible. And we, I don't think we really know why maybe someone's figured it out by now, but, uh, yeah. So I think they modeled William, uh, Forrester off of JD Salinger and catching her eyes up. For me, it was a special book because I read this when I was backpacking around Mexico. And this was the first book that I read that for one, I picked it up whenever I was 15, read the first page I was like, man, I cannot wait to, to read this. This is going to be a really good book. It just pulls you right in. And then I didn't pick it up again until I was like 30, 31. And then I read it and I was like, oh, I'm glad I finally read it. And I was backpacking around uh, Mexico. And this was the first book that I was able to, to understand the subtext of what was happening to the character without being told this is what's happening to the character. This is why the character is doing what he's doing because it's never explicitly stated why he acts and, and does the things that he's do, doing. And so that was the first time I had this kind of, not out of body, but I felt connected to the writing in a greater way. And that to some degree is what we do in, you know, in our podcast episodes. And I was like, oh, so I feel really connected to it. And yeah, so catch you in the rye. Very beautiful. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Oh, so this week we have a short spotlight called Today. It's by Cody LaPlante. You can find it embedded in the short uh, show notes. Uh, it's a really simple but really beautifully done. And uh, it's short. It's only like two or three minutes long. So I'd encourage everybody to go watch it. I think it's visually gorgeous and uh, has a really good punch at the end. Again, we're not trying to find like the next Oscar contender. We want to find stuff that people haven't seen. So I'm constantly looking for things that you probably haven't seen before. So this isn't stuff I'm grabbing off of shortoftheweek.com or the top most voted thing in Reddit. Like I want to find something that you probably haven't seen that I think is good, but I'm also not going to go through like 75 short films. Yeah. Um, So (laughs) cool. I stop when I find something that, Oh, this is cool. Um, I'll, I'll watch it. Awesome. Stay tuned next week. We are going to be covering the prestige shout out to izzy for requesting this. this one yeah thanks, he's been bro. great on the boards man he That's sent awesome. a really thoughtful email and he had a really good uh response to last week's episode and then Sweet. joe howes also dropped a note on our gravity episode you oh get, yeah i saw that did you yeah, yes okay. yes yeah yeah and that was really cool so yeah uh, if you haven't listened and seen that stuff, go back to Gravity, and I think that's that's worth it. Um, don't forget to subscribe, review us on iTunes or your, whatever your podcast app you use. And if you want to comment on this specific episode, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash findingforester. And we'll leave you with the quote of the day. This one is from J.D. Salinger. This is going to blow your mind. <laughs> yeah. This is so good. This is from his short story, A Girl I Knew. She wasn't doing a thing that I could see, except standing there, leaning on the balcony railing, holding the universe together. Can you imagine writing something that good? Like, how do you have that idea and then not, like, explode? (laughs) Because it's so good. Oh, my God. I got nothing to add to that. Uh, yeah, no, there's no, I don't have word. Uh, yeah, yeah no. that's just a beautiful. Just she take that. Just take that. I want to say it now. That's today. all. How about that? That'll be my addition. Is I'll let you hear it again, except in a worse voice. Do it. She wasn't doing a thing that I could see, except standing there, leaning on the balcony railing, holding the universe together. I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch the movies. Mm-hmm.